Well, folks, I'm really excited about this morning's message because I know that Jesus has something very special he wants to communicate to every person. Now, before we begin, what do we like to do first? Pray. Pray. That's exactly right. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer right now. Now, I'm going to ask you guys to do something very special before we pray. We're going to kneel in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you. Thank you, God, because you humbled yourself first. And Lord, we praise you, Jesus, because of your great sacrifice for humanity, for each and every person. Thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom to worship you and the joy, God, that you give us by being in your presence. Lord, we just thank you because you care so much about us. We just pray and ask that this message would come through very loud and clear and that every person who may be here for the first time or have been here many times or haven't been here in a long time, Lord, we just pray that they would know that you have called them for such a time as this. For this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, I just really praise God because I know that this year is going to be the year of big things. Amen? Amen. The year of big things. And I really believe God's starting it off right. We have some wonderful things in store. And uh, we're going to be actually having another prophecy series starting March 16th all the way through through April 7th. Can you say amen to that? You know, I was uh, going through the, uh, there's this dry cleaners that I get my clothes that, you know, you think like, I oh, know, do you really iron your clothes? No, I have the dry cleaner do it. And uh, it's just the same exact coat that I wear nearly every single Sabbath. Uh, but uh, anyway, so I was going through the dry cleaner and it was very remarkable. I didn't say anything. I just handed her the money and she says, Mr. Canada, can I ask you a question? I said, yes. And she says, do you believe something big is going to happen in 2012? And I was like, well, and she's like, yeah, do you believe anything is going to happen in 2012 that's going to be very, very big? You know, and I was thinking, your conversion, that's what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, she, she started talking, and it was very wonderful because she started asking about end-time events. And I had a final event, a DVD that Amazing Facts made, and I said, here, check this out. And I'm really excited because when we get the flyers in for that evangelistic series that's coming up, I'm going to be able to return to her and say, hey, you know what's going to happen in 2012? This prophecy seminar right here. Amen? Amen. This is the year of big things. Amen? Amen? One of the remarkable things that we're going to be doing this year also, we're going to be having lay pastors. Amen? A lay pastor is going to be somebody who's going to work under me, but with me as well, and is going to help extend out the pastoral ministry function of this church. And I'm really excited about this because we're going to be having a lay pastor of visitation, a lay pastor of biblical studies, who's going to actually write a theological paper for this church every single month, maybe twice a month. But we're going to be having a lay pastor of just family ministry so that we can really incorporate this just family, the biblical family model in this church. It's really exciting. There's more to share with you guys, but I, I'm just like, I'm really blown away because God has been opening doors for series. Amen? Amen? This is the year of big things. Well, something came out recently, and I want to read this to you. It was 11 things you can do to live to the age of 100. How many things? 
11. This was actually written by Huffington Post. And here it is, the 11 things, 11 health habits that will help you to live to 100. Here we go. Don't retire. Where's Pastor Keith? Don't retire, number one. Number two, floss every day. It's good for your arteries. Number two, move around. Move around. Number three, eat a fiber-rich cereal for breakfast. Number four, get at least six hours of shut-eye. Amen? Where was that, number five? Number five, consume whole foods, not just supplements. Be less neurotic. And this one, live like a Seventh-day Adventist. <gasps> live like a Seventh-day Adventist? This was not written by Seventh-day Adventists. We actually have non-Seventh-day Adventists who are doing evangelistic series for Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> They're actually putting time, money, and effort in telling people, hey, go be like the Seventh-day Adventists. Praise the Lord, huh? For such a time as this. You know what we're going to be doing March 4th, two weeks before that series starts? We're actually going to be having a total health fair. What's the name of this fair? Total health fair. That's health in spirituality, health in uh, sort of the physical aspect of the body, or uh, the human being, and health in the mental aspect. We're going to be using the South Lawn, and we're going to be having different health booths that are going to be set up. We're also going to be having vegan cooking out there that you can experience. We're actually going to also be having presentations taking place in the fireside room from diabetes, nutrition for your kids, even one on how to keep your teeth clean. Amen? Praise. There should have been more amens for that one. <laughs> Some of you guys might have forgot to brush your teeth, but that's why you need to show up. Amen? But even more, this is so important. Don't miss this point, you guys. We're not about guarding truth. We have the health message, but we're not about guarding truth. We're about giving truth. Amen? And that's one of the reasons why we want to have this health fair, why we want to do a prophecy series. We're not about being inclusive with the truth. We want to spread it out. Amen? Spread it out to as many people as possible. Folks, that's what a Seventh-day Adventist is. He doesn't just know about the second coming. He's telling the world about the second coming. Amen? Well, there's a couple more health habits I want to share with you. And here they are. Be a creature of habit. Be a creature of habit. In other words, have a good routine. Be conscientious of the things that you eat and you put in your body. And I like this one. Stay connected. Stay connected. And this one's very interesting. It's about relationships in your life. About developing relationships, healthy relationships in your life. You know, the thing that causes the greatest amount of pain to humanity is broken relationships. What's very interesting is that the things that cause the, the greatest amount of happiness to humanity is what? Healthy relationships. And Jesus is about relationship. Amen? He's about relationship. And I really appreciate it because what Jesus spoke in the Gospels was very interesting because it helps give a model of what healthy relationships look like. Now, I know there's a lot of people in this world, and there's sort of a debate right now taking place between religion versus what? 
relationship. Where about relationship? You guys are about religion. You ever hear that before? Where about relationship? You're about religion. Now what we have here is a very what they call a false dilemma. Do you know what a false dilemma is? A false dilemma is basically where you place two options that are um, not categorically correct in opposition to each other. So to say religion is uh, in, in contrary to relationships is not something that is very logical. Think about this very, this dichotomy that exists. So when people say to you, it's all about relationship, but you're about religion. Oh, you're about keeping the Sabbath, but we're about relationship. You're about believing in the Bible, we're about relationship. That's a categorical error for people to state that. Think about this. If people talk about relationships, what is the only referent for relationships in their lives? The only ones they have in their lives which tend to be broken, self-centered, unhealthy. So when we're talking about a relationship with Jesus, the only referent that we have outside of Scripture is the only ones around us. And folks, they're not the greatest relationships in our lives. That's why the Bible gives healthy principles about relationships, i.e. religion. That's what religion is, about giving healthy biblical principles about how to have the best relationship, not only with your fellow man, but with God. Can you say amen to that? So when some people say, well, you're about re religion, we're about relationship, folks, just point them to that fact. Help them to understand. Look, you can't have a healthy relationship with Jesus without the biblical religion. Amen? And this needs to be understood. There's these words that are coming up these days that uh, we're, we're challenging where there is a vocabulary battle taking place in our society. Words that used to mean one thing are now being misconstrued to mean something else. But we need to stand by biblical truths. Can you say amen to that? And as long as I'm a pastor here, I'm going to be preaching biblical truths. You can get yourself a pastor who's going to preach fluffy sermons and is going to tell you how you know, great things are. But we need the Bible. Amen? We need the Bible and the Bible alone. We're going to be taking a good look at a, a parable in which Jesus describes unhealthy relationships. Take your Bible. Let's go to the story of the uh, prodigal son found in Luke chapter 15. Starting with verse 1. And I want you to see the context. Context is extremely important. Luke chapter 15 starting with verse 1. Now watch what the Bible says right here. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to what? To hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes what? Complain, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying. Now watch what Jesus is about to say. Now it's very important to understand this before we actually go into that. I want you to see the context. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are very angry because apparently people who don't look holy are hanging out with Jesus. And they're very disturbed by that. They're very disturbed that people with jewelry, people who break the Sabbath, people who don't accept the theological teachings of the church are actually in the church. Those people need to be gone. That's what the Pharisees and scribes are saying. And some of them even sound like they have a little bit of racism there too. 
we don't like those kind of people. Folks, we need to understand something. Those were the very people Jesus came to save. Amen? Amen? And I hope that this church is more and more full of sinners. Amen? Amen? The second we stop becoming a hospital for sinners, we're no longer fulfilling the gospel commission. We've lost it. We've completely lost the very purpose for why the church was created. So folks, I'm about letting as many people as possible into the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Because at the end of the, end of the day, Jesus is going to be asking a question. He's going to be saying to you, what did you do to let people into heaven? What did you do? And I want to be able to say, Lord, I did everything that was within my power to bring as many people as possible into the kingdom. It doesn't mean that there isn't a need for standards. There are a need. There is a, a very deep need for biblical standards. But folks, don't miss this point. The Pharisees and the scribes were very angry simply because they saw Jesus hanging out with these people and these people hearing spiritual truths for the first time and they were jealous of what was taking place. So Jesus turns around and he says, look, I have something to share with you. Now watch what he says next. It's very interesting, okay? Look at verse 4. What man of you having a hundred, what? If he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulder rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice for me, for I have found my what? Sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in what? Heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no what? Repentance. Now, this is something very interesting. What is the very first parable that Jesus gives leading up to the prodigal son parable? The parable of the lost what? Sheep. And who rejoices at the end of this parable? All of heaven, right? Now, watch what he says next. It's very interesting. Or what woman having ten what? Silver coins... If she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, together, excuse me, saying, Rejoice for with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I will say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who what? This time, who is rejoicing in all of heaven? Angels. Now, what is the very next parable? The prodigal son. Now think about that. What you are seeing is concentric circles. You're seeing all of heaven is rejoicing, but Jesus says, wait a second, let me tell you who rejoices even more when sinners are saved. And then he says, the angels. But the very next parable, who rejoices more than anybody else? The father. What Jesus is ultimately describing here is, he's saying, do you want to know who is the most happiest when sinners are saved? The Father. Can you say amen to that? Now, we don't quite understand this. We're thinking to ourselves, yeah, I'm sure that there is sort of this, this joy and happiness that takes place. But what Jesus actually describes the Father participating in, in the very last parable, we would deem sinful. We'd say, wait a second, that sounds a little wrong right there. There's marrying 
and there's dancing? Now, folks, I'm all about standards. Amen? I believe you do not need to be a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters. And I don't believe this was type of the sensual dancing that you see taking place. This was merely a parable. Jesus was not forming a doctrine of dancing based upon a parable. But I want you to understand something. Jesus uses a symbol. He uses an event where there is so much joy taking place. And he says, look, the father is having this, this great big celebration because this, this, his son is saved. I mean, in the prior parables, you read about how just there's this rejoicing in all of heaven. Praise the Lord, there's a sinner saved. And the angels, there's so much joy in their heart, but then he hones in right down to the Father, and that's so remarkable. Because he says, look, there's no one more happy in all of heaven than the Father when you are saved. Than when you are saved. When sinners are brought to the kingdom. Amen? Now I'm going to ask you a question as we continue to dive into our parable. The first parable was about what? Lost sheep. Right? What was the second parable about? A lost what? Now don't miss this point. The first parable was about a lost sheep who wandered off the property. And the shepherd had to go look for him. The second parable was about a what? Coin. Now, where was the coin? It was in the house. Do you know what Jesus shows in the third parable? He says, look, let me show you what a lost sheep looks like, and let me show you what a lost coin looks like. Let me show you somebody who has actually wandered off the property and got lost, and let me show you somebody who's actually still in the home but is lost. Now, this is very remarkable. When you begin to study the parable of the prodigal son, I believe that there are many parables that Jesus gave to describe his love, but this parable tops them all. And he says, let me show you what it is or what the plan of redemption looks like when sinners are saved, whether they are outside the church or whether they are inside the church. They both need salvation. Amen? Amen? This is very remarkable. I also want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. This is where we launch off into our parable. Starting with verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two what? Sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portions of the goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. Actually, the Greek shows that that word means he actually sold the possessions of his father. Gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions on what? Or with prodigal living. Now watch verse 14. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Now I want you to see something. This young man decides one day, he says, you know what, I don't like living in my father's house. I'm sure I can find my own happiness, my own joy by living outside of the proximity of my father. I can be at a distance. In fact, he doesn't just look for just the, you know, the, the next street over. He's looking to a far country. He wants to get as far as he can from his father. He doesn't want to even hear the father. He doesn't want to even see the father. His, his purpose, his objective is to get as far away as possible. 
He's had enough. He's done with spirituality. He's done of the reproofs and the counsels of his father. He's, he's out of there. Now, this is the most remarkable part. As this young man begins to continue to just waste all of his goods or his father's goods, soon the bank account starts running out. There's nothing being put inside the bank account. It's leaking. But he keeps spending his money. He keeps spending all the goods of his father until he's just got a little bit of left, little bit left. And as he continues to waste and indulge himself into a life of sin and transgression, more and more he is spiraling down this pit. Folks, we need to understand something about sin. Sin is not a game. Amen? The Bible says fools mock at sin. Fools mock at sin. Sin is not something we play with. There are many people in the scripture who've decided one day to make a carnival out of life and they've ended up in the most degraded, degenerated positions. And they never thought to themselves that they would, oh, I hope to end up there one day. But as they continue into this life of sin, as they continue to just feast upon the fruits of iniquity more and more, they got pulled away and away, and before long, they had chains of steel upon them, and they could not break those chains anymore. Sin is not something we play with. And I hope you understand that. It should sink into your heart, because what the gospel shows, more and more as you begin to study it, that we are more entrenched in this sin problem than we actually realized in before. But what's also part of the gospel is that we realize that God is so much better than we actually thought before too. Amen? But as this young man begins to enter into this life of sin, the Bible says he wastes all of his goods until he's got nothing left. There's nothing left for him. And before long, the bank account's deleting more, depleting more and more and more until there's nothing left. Now let me ask you a good question. You ready for this? What did, in the first parable, what did the shepherd do when his sheep were lost? What did he do? Yeah, he took his, his rod and his staff and he says, all right, the 99 are safe right there. I'm going to go out. I'm going to go what? Search for him. Now, in the second parable, when the woman realized that a coin was lost, what did she do? She started a search, right? She began to sweep the house, getting all the corners, looking for this, what the Bible calls actually coin, but it's actually the word drachma, which is a day's wages for a servant. Do not forget that. The two parables that preceded the prodigal son parable were very intentional, very intentional by Jesus. So as this woman is sweeping through, she's looking for this day's wages they, they would give to a servant. Don't forget that. And as she's sweeping, all of a sudden she finds this coin and she's so overwhelmed with joy. And she's like, guess what? I found this coin. Now let me ask you a question. In the third parable, the prodigal son parable, did the father go searching for his lost son? Did he do anything for his lost son? Is there anything in that passage that would say, well, the father decided to put on a backpack, took some of his servants with him, jumped on a camel, and went looking for his son? Is there anything that says that he called up the, the best private detectives in the world, and he says, you need to find my son? 
Did he do any of that? That's very interesting. When we're reading the third parable, the parable of the prodigal son, it seems like the father hasn't done anything. Or has he? You know what's very interesting? The book Desire of Ages says something remarkable here. It's powerful. She says, when the son walked away and as he began to waste all the goods, the father, capital F, set in operation influences that were designed to bring the son back. Now let's find out what those influences are. Go back to Luke chapter 15. Verse 13. And now many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with what? Prodigal living. Now watch verse 14. What's that next word? Don't ever forget that word. In Greek, it's the word day. What word is it? Okay. B-U-T, but. Don't forget that. But when he had spent all he had, there arose a, a severe famine. A severe what? What's a famine? A shortage of food, of resources. Apparently this mysterious famine starts taking place. Now watch what happens to the son. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and sent him into the fields to feed what? Swine. So the son realizes he's got nothing left in his bank account and he starts looking for a job and mysteriously... This man shows up and says, hey, look, you can work for me. I'll take care of you. So he gets a job with him, and he starts working for him. And this is where the son starts coming to a realization about things. Folks, what we have here is an example of what God does for lost sinners. He sets out certain situations or experiences. He allows them to take place upon the sinner, and as that sinner begins to go through those experiences, he begins to realize, wait a second, it was much better at my father's house. You know, oftentimes we pray for our unconverted ones, and you know what our prayers normally consist of? God, please protect my family. God, please bless them with, with financial blessings. God, Please help everything to work out perfectly for them. You know why we do that? You know why we pray for perfect things to happen, good things to happen to our, love, un, our lost loved ones? Because at the end of the day, we don't like the feeling knowing that something wrong is happening to our loved ones. And I'm all about that. But I want you to notice something about Jesus. Jesus was not afraid of pain. Pain was not the enemy of Jesus. Do you want to know what was the enemy of Jesus? Sin. In other words, what are you saying, Anel? In other words, this is what I'm saying. If you are serious about saving your loved ones, then you ought not just to pray for good blessings to take place upon them, you ought to also pray for the blessing of trials to come upon them. That's hard. That's very hard. When's the last time you prayed, God, do whatever it takes to save my loved one. Grant them experiences that would challenge them, where sometimes things don't work out for them. When's the last time you prayed something like that? 
But these were the very mechanisms that Jesus actually used to help bring this prodigal son back. Is when things stopped working out for him. Is when his bank account was empty. And as these things begin to take place, folks, and by the way, you know it's very interesting, I listened to a presentation by Dr. Neil Nedley, and no offense if you're a doctor, we love you very much if you are a doctor. Amen? You can still be my friend at the end of this if you're a doctor of some kind? Okay, thank you. I appreciate that coming from... <laughs> Daniel's like, Candy's like, Daniel's not a doctor. But I mean, no harm, no foul, okay? There's nothing personal about this, but this is what Dr. Neil Nedley says. He says, there was research done on the children of doctors. And it was discovered that a huge majority of them actually had lower IQs than those who were born in situations of poverty. And this was the reasoning that the researchers deduced from this. No offense, by the way, if you're you a doctor, there's hope. <laughs> Is that the child was spoon-fed his entire life. He never learned how to deal with crisis. He never learned how to deal with trial, and his mind was not worked to its fullness. But somebody who was born in poverty, somebody who was born in situations that, were, uh, that weren't very good, that child was put into situations where they had to learn how to survive, where they had to learn with this, how to learn to deal with disappointments, how they had to learn and overcome the things that were coming their way. And it was discovered that people who had children who were born in situations that weren't the best, actually their IQ was higher. Why am I saying this? Because crisis, trials, and tribulations are important in bringing our loved ones back to the Lord. Amen? Amen? I want to challenge you on this. If you have a loved one that you are praying with, if you for praying for, if you have kids who you want converted, don't all of a sudden run in there and just say, well, I just want to make sure everything's okay for that child. You'll be praying and you'll be asking Jesus and you say, Lord, help my son or my daughter to learn in this trial how to trust you. And this is exactly what happened to the prodigal son. It was when this took place, he realized something. And by the way, what's very remarkable about the prodigal son, the first half of the story, anytime you see the word but or the Greek word day, it means an interruption. In other words, there's a flow of thought taking place in the prodigal son. People are thinking like this. This is what's happening in the world. But then the prodigal son will interject a word, the word but. And that means an exception. So in other words, if I was to say to you, tomorrow I am going to your house, but I'm going to stop at the store. What am I saying? Yeah, I'm still planning to come to your house, but there's an interruption. There's a detour. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. You're going to see that word but used in the prodigal son parable, but every time you see that word used, it's describing what the father is doing at that moment. So watch this. Go to verse 13 again. This is talking about the prodigal son. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with what? Prodigal living, but... When he had spent all, there arose a severe what? Famine. Now notice this. God is stepping in to the flow of events that are taking place. Now go up a little bit more to verse 17. Actually, verse 16. And when he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything, but when he came to what? Himself. The conviction of the Holy Spirit's taking place there, right there. Okay, look at verse 20. 
He arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his what? Father saw him, right? Now go to verse 22. This is describing when the son keeps making this confession. But the father said to his what? Servant, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his what? Feet. Anytime you are seeing that word in the first half of that parable, it's describing God stepping in and says, no. I want you to understand something. I am actually stepping into this situation. So the prodigal son is wasting all of his possessions and all of a sudden, but a famine arose. God is stepping in and says, no, I'm not going to let you continue hurting yourself. Or when the son starts making his confession, but the father said, get the best robes. He's stepping in. And throughout this parable, you see the, the young man has his own views of redemption, but every time the father is stepping in and says, no, see what I'm doing. And it's very remarkable when you see this parable. But let's continue. We don't got too much time. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with what? Hunger, right? Let's keep going. And I will arise, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your what? Son, make me like one of your hired what? Servants. This young man realizes, look, I've wasted all these possessions. I have wasted all my, the things that you have gave me. I have hurt you. Just make me like the least of the least. I'm not worthy to even be called your son. Let's continue. Verse 20, and he arose, came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, the what? His father saw him and had compassion, compassion, ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son, here's the son, he's preparing his confession speech. He's ready to say sorry, and he says, look, all right, father, this is what, the, what I'm going to say to you. I have sinned against heaven, <clears throat> looks at his notes, and I have sinned against you, and I just, and before he's even done finishing, but... The father steps in and says, stop. Bring the best robes. What's important to the father is not the confession at that moment. What's important to the father is that the son is brought back into proximity. Folks, the heart of God longs for lost sinners. Amen? The book of Hosea talks about Israel and Ephraim when they were lost and he says how can I give you up how can I give you up Ephraim how can I let go of you Israel if you're a sinner today who is outside the kingdom of God folks I want to let you know something the heart of God longs for you today the heart of God is breaking every second you are outside of his kingdom and this is where this, this uh, reconciliation takes place. And like I, I made a joke about it the other day, but this wasn't one of those sort of like Adventist hugs. This was an embrace. It was an embrace. And he's holding his son, and he's just so happy to see his son. Can you imagine that day when you make it to heaven, and the father wraps you in his arms, and he says, my son, he's returned. And all of heaven is rejoicing. Can you imagine what the embrace of God will be like? What it will be like when Jesus himself takes you in his arms and holds you close to him and says you will never 
you will never be distant from me again. Can you imagine what that day will be like? That's exactly what Jesus was trying to communicate to the Pharisees. That God the Father longs for lost sinners. Now, the last part of this parable, the lost coin. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him sound and safe, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. He's one of those boys that was just standing outside his father's house. His lip was probably hanging over his other lip. And he's just like, I'm not going in there. I'm not going to go in there. What's he doing in there? I refuse to go in there. It's very remarkable. Watch what happens. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now I want you to pay attention to this. There are key things that the last son said, the, the older son said that's very remarkable. Normally when we look at this story, we're just thinking, oh yes, this is the prodigal son story. It's about people who are outside the church and the people who are inside the church. And we sort of stop right there. Folks, I want you to understand something. Don't miss this point. There was more hope for the prodigal son outside the kingdom than there was for the prodigal son that was already inside the church. In fact, it even required the, 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 the father to come actually out of the house and begin pleading with this older son. Now, somebody may be thinking to themselves, well, I'm glad I'm not like that older son. I'm going to just describe the characteristics of the older son. The first thing is this. When he hears the dancing taking place and the sound, he decides not to go inside the house. He doesn't want to even communicate with the father. He's disconnected from the father. Second thing is this. He told, tells the father, I have served you these many years. He identifies himself as a servant. Third thing is this. He tells the father, I have kept your commandments. He thinks he's somebody who actually has kept the commandments of God. And then he says, you never gave me anything. There is doubt about the goodness of God for him. And then he says, that I might make merry. What about me? He cares only for selfish gain. And ultimately, this is the most powerful thing of this part of this. He says, and this son of yours. You know what he did? Ultimately, he had disconnected himself from his brethren. There was more hope for the other one than there was for this one. By the way, the shepherd, who's the great shepherd? Jesus. What does a woman represent in Bible prophecy? The church. I want you to notice something. The shepherd didn't lose the sheep. The sheep lost the sheep. But when it came to the woman, she lost the coin. She was the one responsible for the coin being lost. It was not the shepherd and what this is describing, it's describing people who grow up in the church 
or people who have been a Seventh-day Adventist Christian for a long time, but they miss the entire point. They said, I've kept the commandments my entire life. I've served God. And oftentimes they're disconnected from the rest of the body. They're still in the church, but they're still disconnected from the rest of the body. They look at themselves as a slave and servant in the house of God, but not as a son. And dare I say, this describes most Seventh-day Adventist Christians. There was more hope for the other one than there was for this guy. There was more hope for the other one. Now what's awesome is the very end of this story. How Jesus deals with this prodigal son. And by the way, he does not lead the prodigal son story with a conclusion. It was left open-ended so that the Pharisees and the scribes would develop the conclusion on their own. They would come to the conclusion about whether or not they would choose to go back into the father's house and celebrate that these sinners were saved, or they would choose to stay away. He left it up to the individual Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes to come up with the conclusion. But watch what the father says to this one, and he speaks to most people today in this church. Verse 31, and he said to him, son, you know what he reaffirms to that, that church member? Son, that alone is so remarkable. He says, you've disconnected yourself from me, but I haven't disconnected myself from you. And you can imagine that scene. The father places his hand upon his angry son and he says, Son. He, refer, he reaffirms his identity. He says, Son. All I have is yours. Watch what he says. It's so remarkable. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. Do you know you're always with God? You know that? And all that I have is yours. Do you know all that God has? All the heavenly blessings belong to you? The riches of his kingdom. It was right that we should make merry. He's saying, look, it is important that you celebrate with me in the return of these lost sinners. It's important that you understand that. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Amen. You may find yourself as one of the, the brothers, the younger prodigal son, or the older prodigal son today. But Jesus is calling you today. And he is placing his hand upon your shoulder and he's saying, child. I am with you, and all I have is yours. It is important that we celebrate lost souls who are saved. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we just thank you that unholy people like us Sinners like us, God, unrighteous children who have walked away from you many times. Thank you, Lord, 
that you run out to us and you clothe us with robes of righteousness. Thank you, Jesus, that you, you placed your hand upon our shoulder and you call us children. God, we just thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.